0: Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans Podcast, Episode 7. I'm with the legendary Contrary Farmer, Gene Logsdon from Upper Sandusky, Ohio. Gene has written over 20 books, has a daily, not daily, but a, a weekly blog that comes out and has written countless articles on farming and agriculture throughout his career. Gene, thank you for joining us. Well,
1: I'm glad to be here, Ron.
0: Uh, I came across Gene uh, in a couple different ways. Is I've been listening to a couple different podcasts over the last couple years, uh, one called The Beginning Farmer Show and uh, Farm Marketing Solutions, and Gene's name came up, uh, and then recently, this summer, my wife and I watched a movie called OMG, and Gene was interviewed in that movie, and... By golly, doing some research, I found Gene was from Ohio. So, Gene, that's how I came to learn about you. And then and then reading your blog and, and reading a few of your books over the last few months, uh, I, I had to seek this interview out. And I've been grateful that you took the opportunity to, to meet with me today.
1: Well, I say when you get to be 82 years old, you have time for, for this sort of thing. And I'm sitting here in an easy chair and... I am back to Ohio after being away for quite a long time. But I've been back now for 40 years, so I guess I'm a true native.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in, in your writing, you speak often about your childhood, and I, I'm sure you'll address it. it that's probably why you, you came back. Uh, could you give the, the listeners a sense of where you grow up, where you grew up, and, and tell us about your family and the lifestyle that you had?
1: Well, yes, it was right here, you know, in Wyandotte County, Ohio, and uh, I, you know, I look back on my childhood as a very enchanting time, and I have to set it up for you. I, uh, remember, this was in the 1930s when I was uh, born in 31, but in the 30s and 40s and into the early 50s even, this was... Really rural. It still is a really rural area. We have no big cities in, in Wyandotte County. Uh, the largest city, Upper Sandusky, 7,000 people, I think. And, it is, and back then, though, it was a land of small, fairly well-subsistent, I would say, farms, small ones. Farms of, oh, 160 acres. And each farm had its chickens and its cows pigs, and its sheep, and its grains, and its hays, and uh, imagine a whole county of small farms, a pattern, a network of small farms and villages. Now, to make that even more to my way of saying paradise, uh, here where I live, my mother's family was, her name was Rawl, and this was all Rawl farms all around me. My great grandfather came from Germany, and he and his three sons amassed ice, pretty close to three thousand acres, which they then passed on to their children, of which one was my mother. And well, passed on. I, Daddy had to pay for the farm. I do know that, but not not on you know, on rather easy payments. I guess I'll put it that way. But all these little raw farms in the neighborhood here, I could walk to a, a town. More and a half miles away, and only get off of raw land for one small stretch. Now, on these small 160 acre farms, uh, my mother and her generation, every one of them, you know, all good Catholics, you know, and so they were all large families. And I had like scores, really, of cousins first cousins and second cousins. And we all grew up out here together playing ball on the pasture fields and playing hockey, brutal hockey games on the ponds in the winter and it was as I look back, you know, it wasn't as idyllic as I make it sound, but for children I, it was just a lovely life and uh, I am I am sure glad <laughs> that I had, it's so, di- it was so different than what we have today, just so different that I feel like, in a way, that my culture has died in the last decade and that I am a man without a country. I go around saying that. And my wife and everybody else tells me I'm too melodramatic.
2: <laughs> but anyway, that's the way I feel. So that's that's that
1: was my childhood. You know, uh, uh, as briefly as I can say it, I could go
0: on forever. <laughs> well, to that point, can you talk about, who you looked up to? Who were some of the people that inspired you while you were growing up?
1: Oh, my. Gene Autry. Roy Rogers. The <laughs> sons of the pioneers. I, I don't know that I had, other than my parents whom I adored, my grandparents whom I adored, and all of us cousins out here playing together. I don't know. The, the, the teachers were, were nuns. And uh, I think I sort of had a crush on one of them in a way, but they were like, uh, I don't know, I can't say that they influenced me a whole lot. It was just I'd say my relatives uh, we were just such a thick family gathering all the time, it seems like that beyond that, and beyond you know, the radio cowboys on the radio and stuff like that, I don't think I had any. At that time of my life, any real uh, heroes or champions or what you whatever you might call them, um, it I didn't really that didn't happen to me till really high school and later. All my the people who influenced me, I guess I better say that were people I read about. People reading both. I mom made, mom brought home a whole back seat full of books every two weeks from the library and we were voracious readers my sisters and brother and I and so my yeah my my examples I think all came from literature okay. does
0: that answer does
1: that yeah. answer your question
0: there? yeah yeah it sure does in your writing you you reference so much and it it wasn't just in your youth but you you even now, you talk about you wish you could steal second base, and you think about it all the time. Can you talk about the sports that you played growing up and how that's influenced you? Oh well,
1: yes. I was a sport nut. I guess sports nut, especially softball. It was because my dad played softball, and we would go to his games all the time, and for and that was a highlight of our adventures. When I was a kid. My sister and I, we sit at those games and pray for my father to get a hit. When, and so I grew up, you know, under that exciting influence. I guess so. I always, well, we all did. We just sports were uh, our with so much our recreation, and it was fun sport. We didn't have adults screaming at us. You know, you go to a basketball game go today and the coach is out there standing on the sidelines screaming at the players to do the right thing. Well, we would have all quit. We, wouldn't have, we just wouldn't have stood for that, I don't think, And not having been brought up with it. We played among ourselves and kind of made up our own rules if necessary. Uh, and softball, not so much baseball until later on, but softball and hockey were our two big things, and then of course we all had barns. And towards the end of winter, uh, coming into spring, the barn, the hay barns, would be empty. So we'd play a lot of basketball in the in the empty barns. And I think to this day the reason why the basketball season uh, at least used to be you know early spring it started because all the country kids, that's when they started to play basketball out in their barns. So that, that was like uh, a great, Lou Boudreau. that shows how old I am, but he was my hero. And my whole early, early years were how I was going to take his place when I grew <laughs> up. And I could play fairly well, so I mean it was, I suppose that was part of the attraction, but I did have some skill. But in hockey, I was a terrible skater, but I loved the conflict, or we, I should say we loved the conflict, the brutality of beaten up against each other in a hockey game. We'd play late into the night, and that was another thing, you know, in those days, you didn't have to wait for a weekend to come around, because farmers didn't have weekends. They could be free in the wintertime to play, to play anytime, you know, the, thing for us was getting off from school so we would at night we would soak hay bales with oil and burn them for the goals <laughs> it makes it very dangerous to make a goal in our hockey games because you might collide with a burning b- <laughs> <Dale>. <laughs> and, and so that was you know just really just so much fun for us you know I I it just I remember the good times. I don't know if there were bad times. I'm sure there were, but that that's how we filled our lives. We had the space to play softball, the space to play hockey, and the barn, the empty barns in spring to play basketball. And so that's what we did. Great. Right. Influenced me. Well, finally, you know, I, you have to stop me because I'll just <laughs> go on and on and on. But as it as it turned out, and my son turned up to be a pretty good player. I mean, really. And so when I came back here, and we got going, we we formed uh, gotcha. our own softball team, you know, and I managed it and financed it too. And uh, we got to be well over the course of about ten years trading players, just like in the big leagues. We finally had a team, all local boys, right from here in Wyandotte County. And we eventually won a pretty big tournament over in Eastern. All of a sudden, I can't remember what's the headquarters of softball in Ohio. I can't in Akron? The name of it. Over that way, but you don't yeah. say Akron, but that, that area. Anyway, okay. we won a big tournament over there. And that was like well, people ask me, you know, well, what have you been really successful at life in doing? and doing? I said, well, we won a big softball tournament against players from all over you know, this part of the country, big city people and everything. And we did it all with players that were from Wyandotte County, rural area with no more, no bigger towns and 7,000 population. And so that was a real feather in my cap to this day. I still got the the... The what do you call it? You know the big chart of the players of the, the teams. Uh, 109 teams. I got it up here in my office. Okay. All the names, you know, and as you go as the tournament winds down, it, it ends up with our name over there in the champion place, and I look at that every day and puff myself up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. Sounds like the tournament bracket. Is that? Yeah, that's the word I want okay. to
1: use. Bracket. But Okay. You need to help me
0: out like that because a lot of
1: times when you get my age, you can't think of words. Put a capital letter on any common word, and I'll forget it that fast.
0: <laughs> okay, so if you could take the listeners on on a journey, you you graduate from high school, you leave the family farm for a, a pretty extended period of time. What what are you doing during that time?
1: Well, it's it's a strange story, Ron. Uh, in in grade school, uh, I had I was smart, you know. I got good grades. I don't know how smart I was, but I got good grades. And so all the nuns and the priests and the, and the family said, "Ooh, Gene would make a good priest." And I fell for that. You know, I just uh, I was going to go out and save the world. So from my high school, I left. You know, to go away for a prep seminary to study to be a priest. So that was a great influence on my life, I guess, but in sort of a contrary way because what I learned in the seminary was I didn't believe all that stuff after all. And, and that sort of got me, I don't know, into a contrariness that I am known for today, I guess.
0: I've, I've got to stop you there for a minute. Okay, <laughs> okay good. <laughs> because in your writing, you you occasionally occasionally reference your interest in females. That, that seems that seems to be quite a conflict with going into the seminary and being a priest. How did you manage oh, that?
1: <laughs> well, I would say that seminarians are just as interested in females as anyone. <laughs> and uh, I suppose that's part of the problem with the, the Catholic hierarchy today.
0: You know, if they were allowed to marry, I think they'd be a lot better off. But I agree with you.
1: off, You do?
0: Oh yeah, I'm a okay. Catholic too, so I, I agree oh, with you. you are? Yes, oh. absolutely agree. <laughs> well, I've gotten in lots
1: of arguments and debates over all this. And <laughs> I, I tend to be hesitant because I'm a disbeliever pretty much now, but I don't like to push it. I don't, you know, so many of uh, the, the big, famous, popular atheists today, they're so, there's so feisty and mean and nasty to people of faith, and I understand their point of view, in fact I agree with a great deal of it, but you know, my parents, my family, they were all, all church people, and it was okay, you know, I, I don't, when I, when I start to criticize religion, I think of my parents, they were mighty good people. And so if I were to criticize religion, you know, in their presence, I'd hurt their feelings. And I don't want to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. People should latch on to the beliefs that make them feel comfortable, and, and that's fine with me. So,
0: Well, sorry I'd, to sorry to interrupt you there. I just, I had to ask that question. <laughs>
1: I, well, you shouldn't interrupt. You don't, shouldn't be sorry. I'd rather this be a conversation anyway more than an interview. Interviews so boring
0: (laughs) all right so so you're so going back to seminary you realize that it's not what you want to do and you and you take a different belief system and you start developing that so so where do you go from the seminary
1: i came back home and was going to become a big successful farmer and own half of wyandotte county and i was really geared up for that and uh so we did. We, My dad and I and brother, we got into uh, dairy farming in a fairly big way. We were one of the first around, I suppose, to have 100 cows. And it was pretty much of a disaster, <laughs> to tell you the truth. And you, you don't want to get into big-time farming with borrowed money. It's not a very good idea, I can tell you that. So anyway, so that didn't quite work out for me. And so then I... You know, in desperation, what do you do? You know, I've had no background in anything except theology and philosophy and and farming. What a combination. And so I went back to school and back to college. But I went back to college because in Louisville, Kentucky, at Bellarmine, because, first of all, I got a, a... financial help to go there, but mostly because my future wife lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and I wanted to be where I could court her. So, I have to say that my my motives on all this stuff is always more than one. <laughs> and I don't think I was nearly as much interested in finishing my education and getting a degree as I was in marrying Carol. So, anyway, got both, and and by. Sure luck, you know. At, at, uh, I, I needed to go. I had to go to school one more year to get because they honored most of my my credits from the seminary, but not enough. But but then I had to go to school another year to get a degree, which I did. And then I signed up for an application to go to Indiana University to graduate school to study American culture and folklore. You know, I just. I saw that on a bulletin board, and I I think I'll sign up for that, because it sounded interesting. I did, and again, because I had good grades, I got a three-year fellowship to go to Indiana University. I mean, that was just like manna from heaven, because I had no money at all. So anyway, Carol and I got married, because we knew the next three years we had it paid for financially if we didn't spend any money. And that's what I did. I went up there and, and worked for a PhD, did all the work for it, never got my PhD because I again, you know, old wild gene. I I started writing. We needed money desperately and so I started writing. Mostly because Carol kept egging me on. I don't know how she knew. But she's I said, Well what can I write? I'm you know, and she says, Write something funny. She knew that I, I don't know, the way I talked, I guess, that I had some kind of, I don't know if it's a gift for humor, but a, at least a yen for humor. And I, so I started writing humor articles for Farm Journal Magazine, because that's what I knew about farming. And they bought them, you know, it was just miraculous. And we needed the money so bad, because we had 20 kids already, you know, by that time. And uh, so they offered me a job. I took it, and in taking it, I think I sort of, uh, I don't know, irritated the head of the, of the folklore department. So I am, anyway, I never did get my Ph.D., but I don't care now. I was wounded at the time, but I don't care because I went on to Farm Journal in Philadelphia and uh, started writing, and pretty soon I, I wrote a book. I had met Andrew Wyeth, a f- famous artist, You're going to have to stop me, you know, Ron. No, you're
0: you're doing great.
1: (laughs) And uh, I fell in love with his paintings. I'd never really been that much interested in, in pictorial art, I don't think, but I just thought his paintings were so, he painted the little nooks and corners of my farm life, and I just loved it so much. So anyway, I wrote a book about him then, and when I couldn't, get him to cooperate. I I didn't realize in those days that when you're really, really famous, uh, a know-nothing, a uh, a person of of very low uh, level of influence in the world is not going to get an interview with somebody that famous. So I went around to the people he painted uh, and interviewed them and wrote, their story about what they thought about Andrew Wyeth. and it made a pretty nice book, Double Day Punishment, pu- published it and I was like you might say on my way whatever it was So that uh, that's what happened to me after high school and college and, uh, then at Farm Journal I, I you know with me I, I'm always I've never been able, I wanted to just have a little farm of my own and be able to write funny novels for, you know that's what my ideal oh and play softball too <laughs> and of course such a romantic view of life it's just you know out of the was a question but it, but Carol and I we stayed at farm journal in Philadelphia for 10 years and saved every penny we heard. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a joke the other day a guy said well he got the first penny he ever made back in 1931 and he's got the last penny he made, you know, up in 1980. And then they said, and he also has every penny earned in between. <laughs> so anyway, that was sort of us, in a way. And we saved enough money that, although it was very, very risky, <clears throat> I came back to your home, bought 20 acres, built a house on it. And so for the last 40 acres, 40 years we've been here and writing writing books and articles, you know, just full time, full blast, all the time, still doing it in 82, because I have to make a living. I never was what you would call a really financially successful writer at anything, or financially successful at anything, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but a very, very happy life, because I've lived exactly the way I wanted to live and How many people are lucky enough to
0: be able to say that? I got to stop talking and clear my voice. Sorry. Okay. Well, that's good because I've got a, I got a question for you. Since okay. since we're on the writing part, I, I had a few questions with that. In, in your career, uh, and I, I'm I've only read a, a portion of your work, but the content you've produced it's incredible. What's your daily writing process like?
1: Well, it's it's constant. I, you know, the first thing I have to say always to this question is I'm writing all the time. You know, the time I put in in the office here, yes, that's that's daily or almost daily. But also when I'm out in the garden or on a trip or anything, my mind is always writing. You know, it's almost a curse. I remember even in high school when I started to write my first book, which, of course, never brought anything. But anyway, when I would be in an exciting adventure or experience or something, there would always be this little thing up here in my mind, this persona up there that uh, uh, was writing it down and and making it sound better than it really was too. But this, this writing shadow is always with me, and I guess if it means anything, it means I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in life, and that is being a writer, because I'm always writing, not just when I'm in the office bent over the computer. And a lot of times, the best things that I think of to say I'll I'll be out hoeing, maybe, and be, you know, daydreaming on a subject, and bang, it'll come into my mind. And uh, then, in earlier, I'd remember that now I have to carry a pencil paper and write it down or I'll forget it. But so I'm always, in a sense, writing. And second important part of this is that Carol takes care of everything else. She allows me an extremely concentrated life on my work. You know, she does the book work and all that kind of crap that I hate to do. Also, in almost as important our two children and our three grandchildren have never given me you know an hour's worry I don't probably shouldn't even say that out loud sounds like boasting and something will happen tomorrow <laughs> that makes me regret saying it but I have I've had good family and and I don't think I know for a person who writes as much as I do they have to have something like that I think If you have to be worrying about family, you're just not going to be able to concentrate. Then the third thing that's more important than the actual scheduling or the actual time I spend in the office is that I had to travel a lot as a journalist, and I did give speeches for a while, but I learned right away that if I were going to really write all the books that I hoped I could write and publish, I needed to have tranquil, long spaces of very calm time. You know, I've just thought tranquility as much as I can because traveling, speechifying, just thoroughly throws me into a, I don't know, frantic panic or something. I can't concentrate on my writing when I'm doing that. So those three things, you know, you have to travel. If you're going to be a writer, you just got to travel. And if you're going to be a successful writer financially, you almost have to give speeches. That's that's where the money is, really more than the, more than the books themselves. I decided not to do that. You know, I, I prefer not having uh, having just a modest income enough to keep us comfortable, and not and not and stay within the area that I wanted to about or you know subject matter
0: Andrew Wyatt taught
1: me the greatest thing he one of the greatest painters in the world he did most of his paintings on the two spots where he lived you know in the summer in in Chadsford and in the winter or no in the in the winter at Chadsford in the summer up in maine two spots two areas neither of which was more than hundred 200 acres most of his great paintings were painted on it emphasized that all the time when I talked to him and and finally did get to interviewing and he is the importance of knowing your subject matter extremely well and the way you do that is to concentrate on the area that you love the most and stay there and do it. Don't be running all over the world trying to be uh, inspired. The more you learn about You know, right within just little wind icon here, there are a hundred books I could write, a hundred adventures, a hundred wonderful stories. Why, why, and since that's the area that I wanted to write about, why go anyplace else And I didn't, or I tried not to. And now, you know, I get, people want me to come and give speeches all over the place, and I just won't do it anymore, mostly because I'm getting too old, but also. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, something I'm amazed about, and, and, and maybe you can articulate your process for it, the, the scope and the variety of things that you cite in your books is mind-boggling to me. How in the heck do you organize all, the, all those pieces of information from all the, that variety of sources and put it into a book?
1: My others would say I'm not very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Organization, yeah. Well, I I'm interested. Everything is interesting, you know. The most, you know, I read about they found a new uh, dinosaur, the biggest one yet out there someplace in the west. Well, you know, stuff like that. Everything interests me, and uh, so I read a lot have always read a lot so I have had a mind that until recently had great recall It you know just very accurate recall now it's not so true anymore and of course I'm sitting here staring at a wall of books that I that I resort to all the time and now with Google you know I'll know something but I won't know it quite well I guess, see, that's, I got good grades in school, not because I was brainy, I don't think, because I had a good memory. I could just, photographic memory, even, you know, I could remember reading a paragraph in a book.
0: to farming you you go you come back to Ohio and and you buy the 20 acres what it seemed like you and if if I'm wrong I'm sure you'll speak to it it seemed like you had a vision of how you wanted to map your farm out before you got there and you just had this ideal ideal sense of what it would look like what what was your purpose and, and what did you want this farm to represent
1: I wanted it to be a place that could, if it had to, be self subsistent I wanted to be able to raise our own food, uh, have our own water, uh, have our own heat. So I, mean, I, I wanted, I, I in my mind, you know, I said, my piece of ground must have a, a, a grove of trees on it. I wanted to be able to make my own. Home heat, and so I think I wanted, ideally, I wanted a spring on it, you know, spring water. Well, I, I couldn't I couldn't find that, but all the other all the other uh, attributes that I figure I, I needed I did have. You know, it was a rolling hill that had good land on it, it had a grove of trees on it, and uh, it was in my neighborhood old neighborhood, you know, the, this the land we bought, I would roamed over when I was a kid, it's only two miles from the home place, hardly that much, even. So, it answered, it, uh, it answered all those, uh, uh, what's the word I want to use, reasons for coming, for, it answered all the requirements that I wanted for a, a home. You know, these were the times, when we came back here in 1971, and that was when the first Back to the Land movement was in high gear. And I, well, you know, I was one of the people that perpetrated that, if I may brag a little bit. But that that was in the air. Everybody wanted to have their own little independent uh, place to live, hoping someday to be able to free themselves from the nine-to-five slavery as well. Uh, very idealistic, you know. It never really happened, and that back to the land was because it was too idealistic. Never really, or it finally kind of failed away. Now I'm getting onto another <laughs> subject, <laughs> but uh, I guess that answers your question. But uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I would play around in my mind. How many acres did you really have to have? Oh. I, I also, I, have, I had in mind making a living off of 20 acres because I knew I it could be done. You know, I I know people who make a living off of five acres, even two acres, you know, market gardening. So that was, an I thought, my in my mind, I had this idea. I knew I had learned or taught myself a lot about raspberries, and I was going, it's a very difficult crop to market, you know, to make money out of it, which is all the more reasonable. Try to do it because you won't have so much uh, competition. So I wanted a place that I could actually make a living off of if I had to, or at least make enough living off of so that with another humdrum job. When I came back here, I didn't know I could, was going to be able to make a living writing. And I told Carol I might end up driving a farm truck through the local elevator or something. Is that all right? And she looked at me, and she kind of smiled. She knew that it wasn't going to happen. But she said, "Yeah, that's all right." So anyway, I always had that in mind that the, the twenty acres would make a, a half, at least, if not more, of our of our income. Well, that did not happen because I started writing, and it was right time for the kind of writing I was doing, and I got all the work I needed to do if I was content to live on a moderate income. And thanks for, to Carol, we were. Does that answer your question? I oh,
0: think? absolutely. I, I, Something I always try and do is deconstruct and, and break things down to the simplest level. And what, what strikes me about your writing is the detail to which you write about what I would call the many communities within your farm or the many ecosystems, how the inter- how the insects are interacting with, with the flowers that are growing, how when you lay a mulch, when you've laid a pile of, or layer of mulch down, the, the weeds and the, and the crops and the vegetables that come from that. Is, is that a good representation of what you're trying to do?
1: Uh, it's a good exit. Yes, it is. My, my, when I finally realized, you know, what I was doing at first, I don't think I really did. I was just putting one foot ahead of the other, but what I, my vague overall general motivation was I was dismayed at how little the, the society, our society knew or cared about farming, you know, food is one surely one of the most important things in our life, and yet most, 90, 90% of the people don't care, didn't care about it, at least then. And I thought, well, I had started out writing for farmers, you know, in Farm Journal, about farming, but I realized what was really needed were writers who would write about farming for the non-farmers, that farmers. It just seemed to me there was a whole area here of marketable pros, I guess you could say, if I wanted to put it down to business But just from my own uh, sense of, of uh, romance, I guess, here was a whole area, an area, a market that wasn't being served very well. And I thought, well, if you could just figure out how if I could just how to tell what entranced me about farming about gardening how much joy I got from it if I could figure out a way to tell that kind of story to the general public you know, not the farmers I mean you, you talk to a farmer about strawberries and he'll talk and he'll think about sweating and owing <laughs> so but I wanted to get the romantic side of it and the beautiful side of it and really it's, it's I I think I overdo that sometimes and don't talk enough about the hard, brutal side of farming, But, but that's what I wanted to do, and I think that I pretty well succeeded in doing that, because as it turns out today, you know, there's a lot more people are concerned about their food, where it comes from, and how it's made and everything, so maybe in an old, tiny little sense, I helped I was on that kind of a old bandwagon, whatever you want to call it, you know, in, in telling people, finding people, and showing them that, yes, indeed, you better start worrying about where your food is coming from. Because it, the way things are going, it's coming from areas where you might not really want it to be coming from. So that's been my pitch in my writing and why I try to concentrate on these beautiful little things. The, you know, bugs. Everybody oh bugs are awful. Bugs are beautiful. And when you can learn to enjoy this kind of detailed beauty on a farm, then is when you will say, I'm going to do that too. And that's what I want to happen. I want a nation of gardeners, not a nation of factory workers. What mm-hmm. does that sound dramatic, You <laughs> should write that dossier.
0: Yeah, that might be material for your next book. So, you're called the contrary farmer. Is that self-imposed, or did someone come up with that for you?
1: Well, I think I, I, I was always known, after high school at least, for being contrary. And, you know, the farmer part of it, I added on because... What I found out, writing, you know, and kind of using that term hesitantly, is that everybody thinks they're contrary. <laughs> really, especially in the agricultural field, farmers all, so often identify themselves as being contrary. And so I, when I used it then for the title of the book, I found out there really are a lot of contrary farmers out there and they really all are kind, so it's, it's a kind of title you can put on something, and if everybody, at least in the agricultural field, oh, no, no, not just in the agricultural cultural field, Gene, every, people like to be identified as being contrary, you know, as going against the grain in, in some ways, and I, I originally got that term because in school I was always raising my hand and saying, yes, but, you know, and, uh, I I just I was what I, I after going through my early years of being told a lot of things about religion, which I decided were not true. I applied that even to science. You know, I think science today is becoming very um, oh what's the word for uh, self rect too too rectitude too much rightfulness too too much thinking that every current theory they have is the right one only to find that it gets disproved you know down the road bit you know the only difference right now to me between a scientist and a theologian is that the scientists will admit when they're wrong a lot quicker so (laughs) i hope you laugh when i said that (laughs) anyway so that's how that term came i i don't know that anybody ever called me a contrary farmer because people who know me You know, they don't really, well, they're beginning now to see that I'm really serious about this small farming thing. But they didn't originally, you know, if you say Gene Loggdon, they'll say the old softball nut. You know, locally, that's what they'll
2: say. They won't won't really, uh, I'm
0: not a commercial farmer. You know, I don't make my living that way. So they don't Hmm. really think of me as a farmer, but just contrary. This is a loaded question. Uh, so, and I, and I I have a sense that you could talk about this for months on end. You talk often about idiot money farming. <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: this, this is going to, well, my answer is going to be partly my own prejudice. You know, I'll say that right off. You know, I have farmers who are in idiot farming. I mean, friends who are in idiot farming, so... You know, they'll appreciate this. Idiot farming to me is when you borrow a whole bunch of money to go into large-scale farming of a kind that is not going to be, that, that's very risky. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, the big idiot farmers hear about, some of them, you know, become successful and they're very wealthy, including some close friends of mine. They've got very wealthy farming but for everyone that does you know 20 20 went bankrupt idiot farming is too much borrowed money too big a scale a kind of farming that is not very uh sustaining and when i say that uh, corn soybeans is not very sustaining from a environmental point of view it, you know there's no cattle with it for manure there's no uh um, hay crops or clovers in rotation for extra for extra fertility or to keep the ground from getting so compact and it is not going to be a kind of agriculture that I in my prejudicial way of thinking is going to continue it's it's very risky and so that's idiot farming
0: okay second loaded question what role should government play in agriculture
1: uh, First, you know, again, we, we, you know, everybody answers questions from their own prejudicial way of thinking. None of us are totally objective. So my gut feeling is that uh, agriculture should not be government subsidized. It should not be have to be that. But we, the kind of farming we have now, you know, large scale grain farming. It is very, very risky and subject to the weather, and more than that, subjected to the manipulation of money. And that being the case, the farmer who is helpless in the face of of, of bad weather anyway is, is really in a very, very risky situation where a sane government, I think, will realize this guy has got to be helped financially. In certain circumstances, you know, if you got a, if your crop is wiped out by hail, um, I think society in general agrees that we should help this guy out because he's raising our food. You know, it isn't like, you know, it isn't like he's raising, he's, he's manufacturing guns. He's making something that we all need to live by, and so, in a world that's so, so governed by manipulated money, you know, this what goes on on Wall Street, what goes on in the stock market, a, 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 a bushel of corn can be three dollars one year and eight dollars the next year. This kind of gyration corn grows in the field on its own sweet pace. It can't speed it up or slow down very much. So it is completely exposed to this kind of investment idiocy that's going on today. So I think that we should, as a society, be prepared with our tax money to help farmers out. Now, the problem with that is, is I have to say it real As soon as I say that, I want to say, but be careful. <laughs> what has actually happened, see, is that this money that we have used to subsidize farmers has been uh, used mostly by people with the more ambition, the more brains, or the more money uh, that they already had from from inheritance to buy up the land away from smaller farmers. So that we end up now today, very much so because of the way we subsidize agriculture so heavily that Rich a few rich people own most of the land. This is no longer a democracy in action and I'm really worried about it. Okay?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I hate to get serious because you know, life is such a is such a mess and I and if you start getting serious or taking yourself too seriously and making vast pronouncements on the radio <laughs> or the telephone. Uh you're open to all kinds of suspicion maybe or weaknesses in your argument hmm. but we we have and, and I have to add one more thing because what's really happening right now is very to me optimistic. We have more people coming into farming right now than we have going out of it. We have a, a big uptick in the number of small farmers and, and this is good and I think I really think it's going to continue. And so all my worries here about subs- subsidies may be just an okay thing, you know. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I I was gonna s I was gonna address that point about the statistics with that and 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 that people are getting into it, whether it's the small farms or uh to your point about just trying to garden more and grow more of their own food, so I think you're certainly a voice that people trust and enjoy reading reading your work uh, to help them do that. Uh, what For someone that wants to just get started doing more from a gardening standpoint, what do you recommend that they do?
1: Well, first I ask them, I'll always ask them, "Well, are you gardening now? You know, cause it sounds like a, an innocent, open question, but if they say no, then I'll already start being careful and, and worried about them going into it, because until a person shows to me an inclination to actually do it, you know, there's so many people who are wishful thinkers and dreamers, and I am on occasion myself, you know, that a lot of, I've learned, a lot of people think they want to become a gardener or a farmer or going there, but they,
2: they haven't had
1: no, haven't had any experience in it yet, so they... Uh, they don't really know at all what they're getting into. Well, so the first thing you need to do, then, I say, is start gardening. And then, and then, if they find they just really like to do that, then go out and buy a small number of acres. You know, you can do it actually with one acre, but I always say, well, try to buy five acres if you can. And five acres, even at today's terribly high prices. Uh, is no more is just as affordable as when you go out and buy your first car you know you pay what maybe twenty thousand dollars for a car oh well, that's at five thousand dollars an acre that's four acres at seven ton. well you know what I'm trying to say is uh, it's affordable to be able to buy a small acreage and then go there and start actually doing stuff yourself and when you and when you want to look for help, well, there's a million books. You know, there's a million books. But I recommend going into your own neighborhood and finding out who's already doing it. Seek them out.
0: Make friends
1: with them if you can. But at least talk to them. Maybe even sometimes get a job, a summer job with them. I I just I have in mind. Very specific people. I should not. I don't think I'll name. But they've made a success, a market gardening success, out of. Out of uh, well, they only really cultivate about two acres. They make a living on it. Now it's not a. It's not a living where you can go to Florida every winter and stuff like that. But it's a. It's a moderate living. Now, if you go there and talk to those people. Maybe help them out. Sometimes they're they're in a position where they need some help that don't pay for. Then you can learn experience while you're doing your own. Yep. I think you really need that balance of always doing it yourself while you're maybe spending some time elsewhere gaining experience or knowledge. But oh, I'm Ron. I'm such an independent sort of guy. I just think that. I've watched people who became successful at farming, small farming or big farming and everything. They don't come to me and ask me how to do it. They're already doing it. They're coming mm-hmm. to me and asking me ways, little detailed things that they can't quite figure out themselves, which I can't either usually. But I'm so much, I hear from so many people who put the emphasis on education. Well, I'll go to school and learn how to do this wrong. I really think that's wrong. I mean, not there's anything wrong with going to school and getting an education, but that's not how you're going to succeed, I don't think, doing it yourself. Do it yourself, maybe go to school part-time while you're doing it yourself, but it's that boots-on-the-ground uh, experience that will make you succeed or break you, and I don't see any way... I don't
0: think any other form of help is equal to that. Okay. Over the last couple of years, you've got a new title on your resume, Cancer Survivor. And you wrote a book. Your latest book is called Gene Everlasting, talking about that part of your life, this latest journey. Can you speak to that?
1: Well, it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh it's a hard thing to talk about, I guess, but uh, maybe it's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I, at, at 82, you're going to die of something pretty soon anyway. So this way I kind of know what probably is going to kill me. But as a matter of fact, I went through the treatments, you know, and then went into remission. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I didn't have much strength I was sitting around. I'm a writer. That's what I do. So if there's nothing else to write about except sitting around taking treatments for cancer, why? that's what I'll write about. And so that's what I started out to do. And and then as I got into the book, a lot of times, you know, I'll start a book, I don't really know for sure what I'm up to. But when you get into a subject, then what you learn leads you onward. And I, I quickly learned that... Uh, in the younger society today, especially, people are no longer satisfied with the kind of uh, uh, beliefs about the hereafter. I guess I'll put it that way. They're no longer satisfied with that. They they want to they want to hear more about other ways to think about death and other ways to think about what happens after death, if anything. And that and that became. I saw that there was so much of a a current in society toward this, I thought maybe I'm on the right track here. So I kept writing, and then, of course, I realized that I wanted to say something comforting to the family, you know, just in case I did die right then, and also, and probably the most important thing of all, since we're all selfish creatures, you know, is I wanted I needed somehow to uh, psychologically help myself. If you want to if you have a problem, write about it. A lot of times that will really help. And so in this case that's what I did. And the more I wrote the, and the more and and being i guess close to death, you know, the more I began to think about dying. The more it seemed to me that I had to say in the more different things in life, I could relate to that. And then it came to me about, oh, after three or four chapters, I guess, which probably didn't end up to be the three or four chapters in, in, that I that are in the beginning of the book. But what I, I learned that uh, a farm, a garden, is just a great place to become, how shall I say, Becomes not satisfied, but less fearful of death, because you're dealing with life and death all the time. You know, you work you work on a strawberry patch all year for two weeks of berries, and then there, it dies and fades back into the ground, and it comes up again the next year. This this uh, rotation of life and death on the farm, you can then, or at least me that I could start applying that to my own mortality—that uh, my my body, when when I do die, it goes into the ground, or should go into the ground in a way that it can can uh, 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 be turned back by natural processes into soil again, and then things grow up on it, and other things eat it, and all of a sudden. I just had this like vision, I guess you'd say, of immortal life, immortal life, and that's a hard thing to to say, to, to make any sense. And mortal through mortality, you arrive at what everybody wants: immortality. My goodness, people want to live forever so bad. And uh, as I say in the book, you know, go on Google and type in. Mortality, or life, how how to how to live forever, something like that. You get millions. There's all kinds. Of, there's all the religious beliefs and what happens when you die. And then now in science, there's all these scientific beliefs, you know, that keep you alive some way forever. You know, and and it's all absurd both ways. I think. I mean, freeze your body up before you die so that they can thaw it out someday. I mean, if you want to believe that, there's a comfort in that. Fine, but it's it's uh, it's pretty, uh, I think, absurd. <laughs> so if you, if we could content ourselves and start teaching our children the immortal, the immortality of mortality, that the food chain goes on forever, and of course, my own private and and you know, writing this, as I, it it dawned on me that or not dawned on me, but I thought maybe the the ancient Taoism had the right answer, and that is that maybe matter is immortal. Maybe matter is eternal. I don't don't, don't like to use the word immortal because everything is mortal to me. But maybe life is eternal. That Matter, I mean, is eternal. Maybe there always has been uh, uh, a world, an earth, not an earth, but a universe, and that it always will be. And so, when you think about it that way, even if it's wrong and absurd, as both the theologians and the scientists tell me it is, uh, it's very comforting because uh, even like things like global warming, uh, I don't think we're all. I don't. You know, it leads you to believe have some optimism that no matter how bad things get, there always will be uh, life and that if evolution is right, part of that life will be people. And so that something about a gene logs that rots away into the ground right now, it might be around forever. Does that answer your question?
0: <laughs> well, I've not read all your books. I've, I've read four now and, I thought it was the best I thought this one was the best one because it really it really thinks about that great question more than your others do and it's and it's discussed and written in a way that makes you th- makes you think of, about different ways that that happens and and that it does bring a comfort so I uh, I think it's a great book I, I really enjoyed reading it
1: I was determined not to make it um, an argument between religion and non-religion, or between science and religion. I wanted, I wanted to say things that were sort of revolutionary to both sides and, and objectionable to both sides, but in a way that did not anger them. You know, there's too much anger going on now, and I think I succeeded in that. I haven't had too many letters telling me I was gone to hell or that uh, I didn't know anything about science. Uh, maybe it worked. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, for the listeners who this is the first time hearing about you, where could people find out more about you and your work?
1: Well, <sighs> the best way, of course, is you know, there's 30 books out there now. And uh, if you can find them, and thousands of magazine articles, other there are other biographer type people who are like unearthing and listing the old stuff but right now you know the best way to learn about me is my blog and I hope that doesn't sound too egotistic because what's really great about my blog are the people who are commenting on it they're just the most wonderful people and say the None of that, or extremely little of that kind of nastiness that shows up so much on the internet. It's it's all almost all positive and very very uh, original thinking. And I like to think that my readers, I'm really honored by them. And I think they say, reading their comments, you will learn more about me. I think. And reading my blog, if that's possible, but <laughs> a combination of those two will, I think, teach you about all about all you want to know about me. <laughs> okay,
0: I'm not any; I'm just an ordinary person, you know, really. Okay. Well, Gene, thank you for joining us on the Outstanding Ohioan Show today. I'm sure our listeners will follow up and look at that blog post and hopefully read some of your books because they are wonderful contributions and a wonderful legacy to what you've been trying to do with your life.
1: Well, I sure thank you for taking the time. What you're doing is wonderful too, you know, interviewing people and doing your podcast. I I think that's a great way to uh, contribute to society.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for listening. Have a great day.